You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here with you for your murder mystery world tour. And Herds, I did just want to celebrate this moment for a little bit. Oh yeah? What are we uh, celebrating? Well, because I, I could reach out and touch you for the first time. Almost. In, in months. Oh, there it is. In months. We're in the same room for Death of the Reader. We are talking the early cases of Akechi Kogoro by Edogawa Rampo, and we are discussing the last story in this collection the dwarf. Where do we even begin with this story? There's so many, like, well, let's be clear. There's two distinct sides to this story. Yeah. Um, it opens pretty straightforwardly. Mm-hmm. We're following on from the perspective of a character named Monzo Kobayashi, who is our, our Watson. Um, and he sees in the park, he sees a strange, small, crippled fellow carrying a human arm. Uh, and so we are pulled into this strange conspiratorial criminal world where someone has been murdered. We don't know who. Um, and eventually we find out through the tears of a, of a concerned, sorrowful mother that it is uh, Yamamo Michiko. I will say, before we get into actually talking more about this story, I do love how much atmosphere this has compared sure. to the rest of the collection. There's so much time given to setting up the scenes when we uncover the arm, when we first come across the dwarf. Uh, you know, it, everything is given this excellent menacing atmosphere. Absolutely. And I think that whilst uh, Mr. SS Van Dyne would be very disappointed with the long dallying passages of atmospheric description, though they're not excessive, uh, I think that in this case, it actually really lends itself to the mystery because the amount of time that we spend giving flavor to everything really helps, uh, really helps kind of confuse things (laughs) interesting i would have said it it distinguishes the setting to be a bit more a bit more solid um and this book in fact was adapted into two separate movies uh in in japan it was so popular uh it really is like it's the kickstart of his of his career as a murder mystery writer yeah you know as you say it helps really distinguish the style having this atmosphere and there is so much more confidence in the writing Mm. Um, a lot of the choices that Rampo made elsewhere in the stories we've discussed thus far felt scattered. It felt as though the ideas were, I don't want to say incoherent because that's not giving them enough credit, but it, it felt like the ideas were kind of vying for space. Yeah. You know, the fact that we had the same solution for two mysteries in a row in previous episodes, the fact that... Uh, the solution in the first story, the m- case of the murder on D Hill, was just a mess, honestly. <laughs> like, not really a fair mystery by any stretch of the imagination. Everything is so clean and confident here. Yeah, the the other stories sort of felt a bit more experimental, I think. Um, although, as I say, there are there are two, kind of two halves to this story. There's the story of the dwarf, who is a, a character of the story who is taking advantage of of this murder yeah. to e- exploit uh, the said grieving mother because it turns out she like knew all along that her daughter was dead. It's a bit weird. It's a bit confusing, but maybe we'll we'll figure out what's going on in the in the final part of this episode. Well, I have to figure out before I know. the final part of this episode. And then I got to read it. I know, I know. Good luck. Good luck. <sighs> um but yeah, so the the dwarf is kind of this ominous grotesque creature 
Um, and uh, apparently, uh, Edgar Rampo uh, actually has had drinks and lunch with the actors who plays who play the dwarf in his adaptations. Oh, really? He has a very good relationship with them. He loves to chat with them and talk with them about like, so how did you find betraying my character? And they, he has a really good relationship with them, which was great to great to find out. Yeah, that's um, it's really interesting because the way that the dwarf is portrayed in the yes. story is so degrading. Oh yeah, totally. Like it's- this spider like <laughs> monkey child monster. Yeah, the the most kind of of uh obvious point of of description here is that whenever the dwarf has to climb up stairs it's described as being like a crab trying to climb up a wall with its like eight legs just like one after the other crawling its way up i mean there's that scene with mrs yamamo where he like flips onto his back and like scurries like some demon Mm -hmm. thing yeah he turns off the light and she's like oh you're turning off the light that's terrifying he says no no i'm turning off the light so he don't have to see my deformed body it's It's just <laughs> yeah. Um, how are you finding it? Are you finding it quite difficult? Um, you find it a little bit you think it's fair so far? How are you feeling? I I mean, listen, let's just go with it okay. right now. I'm gonna uh, put sure. my solution on the table. Uh, sure, now go for it. Okay. While it's on my mind. Because this mystery feels like it is going to be clean. I feel like I'm going to get to the end of it and be like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. But the way that everything is just everywhere at once we have the doll maker we have the dwarf we have the husband and wife of the murdered child we have the housemaid who's run away we have the housemaid who's working with the detective there's just so many threads that feel so completely disconnected do you want to start with because you obviously have three parts uh, of, of the solution to give here the who the how and the why yes um i i, I will not i will not rob you of your point if you come very very close because this is a bit of a complicated mystery yeah um who is why don't you give us the who first who do you think it is i okay <laughs> this is a hard no, question we're doing that last okay fine what would you like to do first then flex why the, don't you tell the me driver the okay. driver fukia 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 it seems like kamatsu and michiko are both interested in 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 him yeah so i think that they this were. is all a case of love okay and that that is the motivation for it because we have the case with mrs yamamo and then we can tie everything together with this nice loving package okay the how okay okay i think i think you think you think flex that's good. You should if you stop thinking, you lose. So you better I keep thinking. I think Michiko is the culprit. Okay, Michiko being the the dead corpse. The dead corpse. Okay, that uh, makes sense. And I think the how being that uh, she has switched places mm-hmm. with uh, Komatsu. Are you saying? So I I kind of see where you're going with this. Are, are you saying? You're saying that they've like switched switch places. So the maid that is working with the detective and has also gone missing is, is the culprit. Is, is Michiko. Yes. Okay. I have to ask, how on earth would Michiko like because she's still like working in the household that her parents own? Yes. What's going on there? Her parents are in on it. And finally, yep. the corpse being cut up, mm-hmm. I believe was done in collaboration with the doll maker. Okay, why do you think that? I think that the dollmaker is also working with the dwarf Mm -hmm. to create the stilts that allow him to appear as a normal person. They were described as doll-like, the feet, when Akechi, like, pulled one of them off of his body. Yes. A little sock on it. I feel like you've got even a a pretty good good idea of what you think might be going on. (laughs) No, I don't have a pretty good idea. (laughs) Here's the only other thing I'll say, though, Herds. Yeah. Every- 
other case mm. that we have covered in Eastern fiction, all right? Every single one? Every single one. Every single one. Has done the classic murder mystery move of, of putting its title be something just directly related to the outcome of the crime. Sure, the dwarf. All right? So you don't think the dwarf is the culprit? You're going just with a complete crazy, crazy Hail Mary here. I don't think the dwarf is the culprit. So I'm going to- Which one do you want to lock in? Because you've got one elaborate crazy ruse, which is fun. <sighs> like- or do you want to say that the dwarf did it? All the money's on the table. Oh. Deal on it. Deal. Dwarf or no dwarf? Oh. <laughs> I'm going to say no dwarf. I'm You're going to say, say no he's... dwarf. Close the case. Yeah. Dwarf or no dwarf, I pick <laughs> no dwarf. Okay. I would not be surprised if he still was involved in the disappearance and maybe if they like- you know, knocked her out and the dwarf shipped her off to the doll guy who then cut her limbs up, but then that means the doll guy killed- God damn this Pick a story. culprit. Pick a culprit, Flex. Oh, you gotta pick one person I, to be the culprit of this story. Who is the true culprit? It's the title of the story. I picked the dwarf. Pick the dwarf? I picked the dwarf. All right, you picked the dwarf. They You're shipped her off the and the dwarf killed her. Okay. We're locking that and in. And it's all because of the girl. Okay. Let's lock in the dwarf as the culprit. Oh. Let's read the final couple chapters of this story. All right. And we will return to find out if you have earned your point or not, Flex. This is going to be the most agonizing read. I'm ready. I'm, I'm looking forward terrified. to it. terrified. I'm looking forward to We're it. We're discussing the early case of Akechi Kogoro. This is the dwarf. You're listening to Death of the Reader. And we'll be back with my nightmares in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here with you. On the line with me is Walkley Award-winning journalist Paul Daly. And Paul, it is so good to have you here on Death of the Reader. Good to be with you, Felix. Now, Paul, you came like a, a signal from the heavens to me when I was researching recently into our cultural interactions with Japan because there was an author that we've uh, been looking at adjacent to the show who kind of was telling things in a way that felt very similar to me from the Japanese perspective of how I was taught the history of the war, you know, the us versus them narrative that, oh, they were committing war crimes, but our boys were all about mateship. And you've written this article uh, speaking about how Australia hasn't been good at acknowledging its troops and, you know, acts of inhumanity in our wartime. And I was wondering if you uh, could elaborate a bit on, you know, how that has come to be a part of uh, Australian culture and what led to that barrier. Yeah, sure. Well, look, I got got to thinking about it recently, Felix, because, you know, 70, 75 years exactly after the end of the Second World War in the, in the Pacific, um, that was... Um, early September, and there was kind of lots of talk about the day of victory and the day of Japanese surrender. And it was really struck me is that as if we've been sort of caught in a bit of a binary focus on allied victory and Japanese surrender, good and bad. And, and that has kind of clouded a number of other things, not least, you know, the use of the atomic bomb as purportedly being a necessary means to the end of the war. And other things that I really got to thinking about when I when I wrote um, that article about 2nd September 45 was the fact that, you know, there has been such an rightful focus over the years on Japanese atrocities against um, against Australian troops. Mm. And, and this is all true, of course, but 
there was very little focus, including, well, not least in our own institutions, which should be casting light on these sort of things, about the Australian um, treatment of Japanese uh, prisoners, so mm. the atrocities that um, Australians committed against them on the battlefield and I suppose you might say against the dead in some cases too. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that you mentioned in here that I remember so vividly from visiting the Australian War Memorial is the photo of a Australian Special Forces soldier about to be decapitated with a samurai sword that was circulated uh, internally and, you know, changed a lot of the perspective, supposedly, of the troops at the time. When it comes to that barrier, when we look at narratives, how how can you see through that and understand the other side? Because obviously the atomic bomb, as you mentioned, is such a significant point in history. There's no real way from the way that I was taught, and I guess by extension, a lot of other Australians, to understand the impact that that can have on people. So how, how can you dissect that narrative and why is it important that it is formally acknowledged by you know Australian institutions, as you say? It's really important that that Australian institutions, um, you know, whether they be educational, um, historical, um, museological, really pass the full business of war and what it does to human beings and humanity. And I think the only way to do that is to look at it from a starting point that war is a terrible business. Um, we wrap it up in all sorts of language. You know, we talk a lot about sacrifice and the spirit, particularly of Anzac. It seems to me to have gained kind of religious connotations almost. And to me, that really obfuscates the true horror of war and the fact that good and, yes, bad men and women um, do unthinkable things in war. And, you know, the Australian War Memorial has a remarkable um, photographic collection and, you know, you don't have to go very far to find what would be regarded as trophy photographs of Australian soldiers uh, posing with dead Japanese who were killed on the battlefield or or otherwise. They're the sort of photographs that would kind of not be um, out of place alongside those um, Abu Ghraib torture photographs that came to light in um, the early 2000s. Yeah. Um, there was a normality about them. There was a prosaic nature um, to them which made, makes you think and, and probably realise that this was pretty, pretty standard procedure. Mm. Um, so that's an example, I think, of, of what we need to what we need to think about when we think about the Second World War and other wars. And I guess you know, I look at those photographs, and and they would have come home to live with their families, and what they did would have stayed with them. And in fact, you know, I know from my own family's experience that those memories were were pretty enduring and 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 haunting. And then when it when it comes to dealing with these experiences where there is a cultural barrier, I think one thing that is particularly impressed me with your work Paul is the way that you have dissected a lot of the colonial narrative of early Australia. When you come to look at these narratives that have become in so ingrained in our culture, how can you look at something and, you know, separate the colonial, separate the propagandized and, you know, look for an element of truth, look for understanding a culture separate from your own? For me, Felix, it really comes back to, to Stenner and the notion of a, of a silence, uh, of an absence. 
So what really got me onto what happened on the Australian colonial frontier uh, was again the War Memorial. I was writing a book many years ago now, 10 or, 10 or 12 years ago, about elements of Australian experience in the First World War. And I, I came across evidence in, in the archives at the War Memorial of a massacre by Australian troops of uh, Arab villages in, um, in what was then Palestine just after the war's end in 1918 and the subsequent um, official Australian cover-up. Now, that kind of led me to thinking about what else wasn't in the War Memorial. And, of course, it was blazingly obvious but not much talked about mm. 10 years ago that, that there was no telling of the story of the British invasion of this continent and the fact that the nation was was built upon the subsequent dispossession and to my mind of course that should have been in the war memorial and i started arguing the case for it and and you know many others were and have since started doing the same so i guess to answer your question <laughs> it's it's the absence that mm. caught my eye if i know i know that kind of Sounds a bit ridiculous, but it, but it was a matter of what wasn't there that drew my focus. Yeah, I mean, I think that's totally the same way that I saw it when I initially uh, stumbled across your article regarding our experience with the Japanese, because to my mind, reading Japanese authors, uh, there is an absence of the Australian story. And that got me thinking, oh, well, there's an absence of the Japanese story in our telling of various events. And it's really kind of fascinating how pervasive that is across both so many cultures, so many time periods, and so many issues. Your point about the Japanese um, silence on, you know, the enemy experience is, is really telling too because the Japanese who come to, to Canberra often, you know, they're encouraged to visit the Australian War Memorial, maybe not by by their embassy, but but they are gobsmacked when they go there because of the fact that the war and what they did um, to Australian prisoners, et cetera, is in such stark relief at the War Memorial. Many of them, of course, they're not taught it uh, mm. in such detail. Many of them don't know about about that aspect of it. When it when it comes to doing research and looking into matters of you know that that haven't been covered, is the world all grim, Paul? Because you know it's it's so often the story of colonialism, of cruelty, of inhumanity. Is there ever sometimes when you look into it just something that is a, a a heartwarming story that was never told. Yeah, yeah, there there there, there are. Um, in terms of the frontier and the um, the remarkable stories of cross cultural friendships and compassion and humanities uh, are certainly there. I mean, they're rare and they're difficult to find, and there is often a like a power imbalance at at the heart of them. But there are stories of colonial explorers being saved by Aboriginal people, of course, and there are stories of colonists showing great compassion to Indigenous people, and there are stories such as those in the in the Bathurst War of, of the warrior Windredine, you know, forging great friendship with, um, with one of the local families, the Sutter family, which really created a sanctuary during during the Bathurst War. And I've, I've actually sat down with the mm. great-great-grandson of Sutter, the, the colonist, the landowner, and the great-great-grandson of um, Windredine, you know, at the same table over a cup of tea to talk about, you know, dispossession and um, the experiences of those those families. And that, 
that is one of the more remarkable things I've done in in my life, I must say, one of the more touching things. Mm. It's always it's always good, you know, because so much of history is so confronting in so many ways, especially once you start to look into those absences, as you mentioned. It's always, you know, good finding the, uh, the diamonds in the rough. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, looking at Australian colonial history as, as in colonial history and so many other kind of outreaches of what was the empire, it's a pretty grim business. So, mm. you, you know, it's, it's great to be able to, um, to find those really startling experiences of humanity that, that, that lift the human heart. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us here on Death of the Reader. It has been fascinating hearing your insights on the matter, and I will have links up on the podcast to your work and that article in particular if people are interested in looking more into it. Thanks, Felix. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here with your Murder Mystery World Tour. We are discussing the last story in the early cases of Akechi Kogoro, the dwarf. I have just <laughs> read through the solution to this story. Yeah, it's great. It's a great solution, right? I, I really... have never experienced <laughs> such an emotional roller coaster in my life. If I had merely stuck to my guns. I know. It's so funny because you, you I know you said that you were kind of all over the place trying to solve this story, trying to figure out what's going on, the who, the why, and the how, but you actually got very, very close. You were, I you, got there. You the only reason I changed my answer, the only reason I changed my uh-huh, answer was, is because I was so me? ready for a fake out, but I wasn't ready for the double, the double fake, fake out. out. Yes. Oh. Let's be clear. So uh, I, when I read to this murder mystery, I wasn't trying super hard to solve it. I, I was shocked by many revelations, one of which is that, yes, the body of the murder victim, who's not Michiko, but the maid Komatsu, uh, is found in the dollmaker's house. And the moment where Akechi walks up and, like, slams the doll with his hammer and, like, all the sand spills out is a brilliant visual. It's so I love good. It. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the reveal is that it was Michiko. It was Michiko with her suitor. Uh, the driver, Fukia, and her father, Mr. Yamamo, who have orchestrated this crime and that the dwarf was sort of uh, a criminal handyman who was helping them out with it and who decided to uh, blackmail Mrs. Yamamo to 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 uh, get take advantage of her, basically. But the double fake out is that when Akechi looks at the corpse in the doll, he says, oh, that's strange. There are some strangle marks. And I thought that Michiko had had, had killed her with... This this statue bust. So maybe maybe it wasn't Michiko who actually killed it. Maybe it was the dwarf. Can I tell you the the line I knew I messed up? Yeah, what's the line? <clears throat> then who on earth did it? Tamura and the chief detective shouted almost simultaneously. The dwarf. I will now report the new facts that Saito here has brought me. Yeah. The dwarf has regained consciousness in a hospital bed. Yes. It seems now on the verge of death he will confess all of his sins. I knew at that moment yep. what Edogawa Rampo had done to me. Yep. I knew Don't the play. crime that had been committed against me. Can I tell you why I decided tell to me. go with the fake out instead of the double fake out? Tell me, tell me. Because I figured herds. It's it's a thematic on this show almost that I just don't uh-huh. get love plots I and know. love stories. And that's exactly what this entire story I was, was about. I was so proud of myself for noticing the love plot in this. And I was like, mm. oh, yes, I did it. I finally, I've I've met Herds at the gates to his kingdom. I know. What I didn't realize is that unlike every other story we've covered thus far, it is not that the lovers were 
the good ones in the story. Yeah. It's that all of the lovers were the bad ones yeah. in the well, story. It's, it's kind of an interesting twist. We're presented from the outset with a very clear villain, the dwarf, who is a criminal. He's already going away for life or dying through his head injuries or whatever. So we can shift the blame of the crime onto him and save the life of Michiko. And this is why I love this story, because it is all about love and it's about like understanding that the penalty for having justice brought to this girl for her crimes would be devastating for herself and for her family. And Akechi, because he's the smartest man in the room, realizes what's going on. He's not just smart enough to figure out what's going on. He's also smart enough to morally like d- deliver the final blow and to figure out the the happiest way for this story to end. Screw Akechi Kogoro. Look, no, do not, no. Don't screw anybody. No, okay. Akechi okay. Kogoro, best character ever. I love him. He sh- he really knows how to treat a murder right. case with love. Right. And right. I respect he that. Here's the rubbish. Here's the rubbish. What's the rubbish? Here's the, the junk Flex. I want to take Come out. Come on, all right? The reason, the, the reason, aside from the fact that I didn't get that the lovers were the bad guys okay. in this story, <laughs> the thing that I had g- almost grasped here mm. was I thought that Fukia, the love interest of Kamatsu and Michiko, I thought that what had happened was that because he was the porter that carried things to the dollmaker's place okay. at, at some point in the story. And I thought to myself, oh, that's like a really morbid, grotesque thing to have him carrying the body of one of his lovers unbeknownst to him yep. to the dollmaker. That would be gross. And I was like, that would be really terrible and grotesque. <laughs> and you know, and that's the whole thing is we find out it's <laughs> we find out it's Michiko at the end. Yeah. And we and we think to ourselves, oh, well, it's, you know, Michiko gets put away and it's a good thing because Fakia, the innocent young man, gets off and away from this crazy, murderous Rose woman. family, yeah. But and no, he's, he's in on it, basically. He's like, in on it. Yeah. And that just, it messed me up, man. It messed me up. But yeah, like, I, I got that there was a scapegoat. I saw the double fake out coming and I just ran straight into it. I don't know specifically what it is about this story that tripped me up so much mm. uh, because it, felt very clean it felt yeah. very familiar there were aspects of other authors that i've read uh which were clearly inspired by this story so i had some familiarity coming back to it mm. but it was really weird because getting to the end of this story i felt unusually out of my depth because i mean all of the clues are there and yeah. very explicitly like even the things i picked up on that were more vague like the makeup and the body double yeah. all of it is pointed to with very explicit language the elegance here i think is trying to figure out how it all ties together sure. because there's the timing of when fukia went to the doll makers there's the timing of when the hand showed up there's the mm. timing of when the ink blot was first found yeah there's there's so much going on here that trying to create a cohesive structure for a solution sure was really difficult and i think that i, I don't think there's like a core element to this story that i would point <laughs> out and say like i wish more authors would do this because because the thing is yeah. like I'm, I'm extremely frustrated that i didn't get it because i was that close but at the yeah. same time this feeling of being so close yet so far yeah. is what I love about murder mystery. Yeah. And it's so good coming back to it. And it turns out that the justification for the double fake out is Ikeshi Kogoro does have morals that he's trying to uphold in society, um, which is is a great, a great ending for his character in this story. And you know what? I hate it. 
You hate I it? I hate it. Akeshi Kogoro, you should have sent them to the slammer. No. They did Awful. a murder, and even though they might not have put that girl to her grave, they, they were complicit in sending her there. Well, they did put, well, they, they did put her in her grave, basically. Look, they killed her. That's the but, but no, 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 no. I don't mean Michiko. I mean the father. I mean oh. the busboy. No. I mean the doll maker. I mean the dwarf. Just chain a lot of them. Well, that's just heartless. Chain that's a lot just of heartless. them. They all did it out of love, Flex. And you know what? If this is where love gets us, love is cancelled. <laughs> love it's is cancelled. You can't cancel love. I can and I just did. Well, all right then. I guess, Flex, look, obviously, obviously you're doing this to get a reaction out of me, but I will say, so it's entirely clear, love has every place in murder mystery. <laughs> a, a murder mystery without love is like... A sandwich without bread. It's just not a sandwich. Well, Herds. Yeah. It is, in fact, time for me to tell you what we're doing next week on the show. What's the novel? What do I have to solve? Let's go. I, I, I have to let, I have to get you to make me a promise first, though. Uh, I'm not comfortable with this. I agree to nothing. What's we're the coming promise? back home, and okay. I'm picking a story. We're coming home. We're coming On the home. recommendation yep. of Robert Gott. Oh, Interesting, interesting. What has Robert Gott recommended Robert me to Gott solve here? Robert has recommended The Rules of Backyard Cricket by Jock uh-huh. Song, saying it is uh, one of the greatest modern Australian murder mysteries. Okay, I, I want to let you know I'm not a big fan of cricket. I know that that's heresy in Australia. That's, that's fine. Hertz. I did play baseball as a, as a young lad, though. I quite enjoyed that. Here's I know the, the challenge, still. though. Hertz. What's the challenge? Tell me. The challenge is... You have to then find us an Eastern murder mystery mm-hmm. revolving around mm. a game of Eastern culture. A game. Mm-hmm. Ooh, uh, my mind leaps Mahjong, to Mahjong, yeah. Be it That's martial arts. One. Sure. I want I want a game-related murder mystery right. so that we have the comparison point between Jock Sarong's work and your next pick. I'm sure I can find something exciting for us. And if I can't, well then we'll just have to we'll have to we'll have to explode. I guess. <laughs> All right. I have you know faith what? in you. I have I mean, faith in look, you. I have faith in me too. Give me some time. I'll whip something up. All righty. Like the chef that I am. All righty. Well, uh, yeah. the chapters we will be covering are the first to the eighth. So, Herds, I'm looking forward to getting back home to Australia with the rules of backyard cricket, and mm-hmm. I'm looking forward with then coming back to Eastern fiction with our new context the weeks thereafter. Look, I'm ready for it. More that's familiar, more that's strange more murder mm-hmm. um, you are listening to death of the reader we are flex and herds this is your murder mystery world tour and we will see you next time mm-hmm.